This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. Back in the silent film era, before Mickey Mouse, there was Felix the Cat, a clever little rascal with black fur, wide, playful eyes, and a certain feline liquidity in both form and function, who would come up with all sorts of creative solutions to whatever trouble came his way. Because these cartoons were mainly accompanied by jaunty musical scores, with dialogue only ever showing up as text, the animators used visual cues around Felix's head to illustrate what he was thinking. Sometimes these cues were exclamation or question marks that Felix could touch and turn into a weapon or tool, or a dotted line of sight that our quick-thinking hero could walk across to make his great escape. And sometimes, when Felix the cat got a really big and brilliant idea, there was something else over his head. A light bulb. The light bulb has many early histories and a wide range of origin stories. I was originally taught the North American classic that Thomas Edison had invented it. And by taught, I mean that schools, TV shows, books, and games all repeated this claim with unwavering confidence. Later on, I learned that even this story was a bit of a hedge. Edison had heavily promoted his modification to the hard work of preceding patent holders in a long century of improvements to incandescent design. His ensuing acclaim as the singular inventor of the light bulb, along with a wide range of other electrical technologies, lasted so long because of how well it supported the myth of individual genius in the U.S. economy. This grand idea of how the country was exceptional because it allowed pure talent to rise to the top of the financial pyramid in ways that countries with nobility would not. Ironically, of course, Edison is a perfect example of U.S. exceptionalism, but by gaining personal fame on the backs of so many others, as is so often the way of corporate enterprise. The example he sets is not exactly the most attractive portrait of the American dream. And yet, even my first introduction to historical corrective was also guided by nationalism, because it came from a Canadian teacher eager to inform his Canadian students that the earliest patented design of the incandescent lamp actually belonged to two Canadians, Henry Woodward and Matthew Evans in 1874. This was exciting and revelatory news at the time, on par with how Canadian children are taught that Alexander Graham Bell was Canadian, so the telephone was quote-unquote ours, which is only a half-truth because Bell was born in Scotland and died a naturalized U.S. citizen. But Dagnabbit, after his family first immigrated to Canada, he developed his famous invention in the true North strong and free, and that was enough to feel like the telephone was ours. I can't help but wonder then if my old teacher would still have been as eager to correct the Edison story if he had known that the light bulb had been invented somewhere else. Does history really matter to us when it can't easily be used to prop up pre-existing notions of nationalist or related demographic pride? (laughs) 
Years later, when doing research involving early 20th century Russia, I would learn that the Canadian version of the light bulb story was also not quite accurate. In the 1920s, something called the Ilyich lamp became both a dream and a reality in the Soviet Union. Its name refers affectionately to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who had come to visit the little town of Kashin to honor the launch of the very first rural electricity generator. His praise for the bare incandescent bulbs that the village had committed to installing in all its homes became a call for the illumination of the whole Soviet Union. In consequence, the light bulb was ironically a huge symbol of nationalist innovation in both the United States and Soviet Russia at around the same time. The design of that Ilyich lamp, though, was already pretty old by the 1920s. In 1872, Alexander Ludigin first submitted a patent application for the incandescent lamp. He received that patent and a prize from the Petersburg Academy of Sciences and established the Electric Lighting Company before association with the wrong political movement compelled him to emigrate. There are other stories of the light bulb, stretching back to the early 19th century, and yet it's the story of the little village that could, the small Russian town that had worked so hard to bring light to its people, irrespective of where the invention itself came from, that has me reflecting on the use of the light bulb as a symbol of ingenuity flashing over the head of Felix the Cat and many characters thereafter. It's that mental flip, after all, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're stepping out of the shadows to explore some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around our sources of light. I should note, of course, that some folks object to the light bulb's continued symbolic use in fiction and marketing campaigns, because after a century of radiating more heat than light, the traditional incandescent lamp is now considered an outdated and inefficient technology. And to some extent, I agree, it's been a privilege and a joy to see so many new designs for lighting show up to take its place such as the high-performance halogen light bulbs, compact fluorescent light bulbs, and LED bulbs. But I also still click on a floppy disk icon to save my documents, and I scroll through online content even though I can't remember the last time I worked with literal papyrus, the material, not the font. We have plenty of older technologies grandfathered into our visual and linguistic vocabularies. So no, it's not the simple use of the light bulb for aha moments that bothers me. What strikes me more is that historically, the extension of indoor lighting into more people's lives around the globe has never been the endpoint of ingenuity so much as the foundation for other inventions and innovations.
When we can take light for granted, we illuminate far more than the rooms around us. We allow people to complete projects after sundown and to sell their wares and services for longer periods of time in the market. We make it safer for people to move within their communities, and not just in terms of reductions to violent crime, but also in fewer traffic accidents. We permit fellow human beings not only to invest more in economic projects, but also to gather to talk about broader social issues and to build up the cornerstones of a more robust democracy. We make it possible for children to study more and for people simply to be out together longer when we ensure that everyone has greater control over their light. What I'd argue then is that the individual invention or the person who invents it matters far less than how soon we can reach the almost 1 billion people who do not yet have consistent access to electricity so that they can see their own exceptionalism flourish too. That's the story I now really wish that I had been taught in school, not to fawn over the creator of some new technological good, but rather to reflect as a community on how we can now optimize the benefits we all reap from it. In 2021, I read a success story about bringing light to an underserved sub-Saharan region, the city of Jinja, or Idinda, in the local Bantu language of Soga. Jinja City sits on the northern shores of beautiful Lake Victoria, near the mouth of one of the Nile's two main tributaries. It has a population of some 300,000 whose work in Uganda's second largest regional economy primarily supports manufacturing industries like sugar and steel, along with hospitality and wilderness tour services for visitors hoping to experience the surrounding lands. The city's British colonial beginnings going back to 1901 are still evident in its architecture and design, with an urban core that has a modest electrical grid and surrounding poorer districts that do not. I have never been, but seeing pictures and reading stories about the city puts me in mind of places that I have seen in Colombia and Panama, that same delicate balance in the streets between enjoying the small comforts of humble everyday life and being surrounded by quiet but inescapable reminders through industry, through outsiders, through the echoes of past colonialism in current infrastructure, of how deep the disparities and precarities of life still run. Jinja's recent move to more comprehensive solar-powered street lighting was by no means the first story I'd read about global efforts to bring sustainable light and energy to off-grid communities. I was well aware, for instance, of the IFC World Bank's Lighting Africa, Lighting Asia, and Lighting India initiatives, which focus on, and I quote, catalyzing markets for modern off-grid energy. That means their approach to bringing lighting to the off-grid world is consumer-oriented. It focuses on educating individuals, businesses, and governments in the importance of investing in high-quality energy solutions, while also providing a path for quality-assured energy products to emerge as market-stimulating competitors. 
Why not just give away these life-changing services instead of selling them? Well, World Bank action groups would argue that doing so would only drive energy retailers out of the market entirely, which would in turn reduce access to reliable energy over time. However, they also note on their online project pages that one of the biggest problems they face is that many countries, local governments, regional companies, and average citizens simply don't have the funding they need to acquire all of these products that action groups are promoting. How can you sell something to a system without the starter cash to buy it? And so, these action groups are also involved in generating new funding opportunities by commodifying other aspects of their target demographics and establishing loan programs around this new commodification to bring these global citizens deeper into the fold of modern commercial debt markets. In other words, these action groups are still dealing in artificialities by deciding the terms through which they will assign initial market value to new players in global capitalism. And worse, many of these artificialities have proven inadequate to handle, say, the impact of a pandemic on local economies. Indeed, COVID-19 has not been any kinder to consumer-driven energy solutions than it has been to a wide range of other industries. The fact that Jinja City finished its major lighting project despite the pandemic is a testament to local resilience and to Ugandan government's seriousness about rectifying the region's egregious histories of energy company exploitation. That's not the story I was first presented, though, by early online reporting on Jinja City's accomplishment. No, the Jinja City success story stands out for me in a sea of other off-grid success stories because news of this new lighting in Uganda did not foreground how it would serve its local community, but rather how wonderful the region would now be for future tourists to visit. And so I had to laugh. Here was a major social development responding to a complex array of local issues, and we in the West were reporting on it in relation to how it would serve us. Typical, right? Yes, tourism can also serve local interests too. Jinja City in particular is routinely promoted as the adventure capital of East Africa because its urban environment is a great staging ground for nearby wilderness explorations. But that part also puzzled me. If Jinja City was such a great tourist hotspot, why hadn't it been able to afford improvements to its existing electrical grid? The city, after all, is incredibly close to the country's major hydroelectric dams, which supply the overwhelming majority of power to the region. Yet somehow, Jinja City had accrued a 3.5 million US dollar debt for energy use in one small part of its overall urban landscape the older, more colonial sector, before Umeme cut off public services. Obviously then, although we like to think of tourism as something that automatically uplifts other communities, Jinja City had not been benefiting enough from tourist dollars or from its major manufacturing economies 
even to keep its existing streetlights on. But how could that be? Jinja City is not a complete outsider to global capitalism. It already had plenty to contribute before action groups got involved to assign valuations to local parties that would allow them to receive investment loans. So why all the struggle to get something as basic as light into Jinja City's streets? This isn't a simple case of local versus global economies. Rather, there's been a long-standing struggle with Uganda's primary source of energy, hydroelectric power, because the dam's water supply is highly dependent on the state of Lake Victoria's tributaries and overall rainfall, the latter of which has been affected by increasing seasons of drought, the former of which sometimes suffers from human interventions elsewhere. And because major hydroelectric generators weren't running at full capacity, there were massive power shortages as demand greatly outpaced supply. The Ugandan government had been asked to build more dams in response, and yet it wasn't easy to drop new facilities into the region's energy and environmental equation, especially after the country's electricity sector was opened to private industry. While private investors have helped in some ways to launch new facilities, they also have fewer incentives to improve energy networks in low-income parts of the country. For this reason, the Ugandan government has had to work directly with municipal governments to offer cost-saving solutions, such as self-sufficient energy futures, to counteract the complex impact of choosing to privatize energy production on a national level in the first place. In other words, in the century and then some since our first commercially viable light bulb, we human beings have become exceptionally good at advancing the commercial side of the equation, and less so the side that actually optimizes human agency through the benefits of new technology. But sometimes the mess of our system also inadvertently points to the possibility of a better cure. Like many cities in sub-Saharan Africa, Jinja found its energy solution in something called technological leapfrogging, which is when a community bypasses many intermediate steps to adopt the most cutting-edge inventions and innovations out of a dire necessity that doesn't quite exist in communities that are just barely getting by within more institutional and heavily regulated economies. And solar-powered lighting is definitely one of the best possible steps forward for our world. Yes, to some extent it only trades one set of environmental problems for another, as more light pollution fills our skies on the back of all this new energy, but at least citizens are no longer left at the mercy of drought, which places like Jinja originally endured in the form of power outages even when they could afford to pay their electrical bills. The irony then is that we in Western cultures absolutely do stand to benefit from the tremendous work that cities like Jinja are doing to improve citizen well-being by bringing cleaner, safer, and cheaper solar-powered lighting to all but not through increased tourism potential, and not through the feel-good storytelling of seeing an international action group give aid to some of the hardest hit in our global family, 
No, it's through what the existence of communal light itself represents. Not a bright idea, the way the light bulb is used in cartoons, but a bright follow-through. A recognition that if a given advancement is what our community needs to thrive, then our collective responsibility lies in making it part of the backdrop of our lives. Not in quarreling over who was or who will be the most important person to get us there. That is what communities like Jinja City stand to teach us, at least. If we allow the spirit of resourcefulness that they represent to become a beacon for us all. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, Wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Thriving.